Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rockin' Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon B.K. Kylie, And this is before the box score. June 16th, Year of Our Lord 2020. We are gearing up towards an inevitable football season, whatever that's going to look like. Uh, we are heading headfirst into that. B.K., it is June. We have things to talk about, which is nice. How are you doing, my man? I'm doing well. I was looking at uh, Gabe DeArmond's Twitter account earlier uh, this evening as we were recording on Tuesday night, and he was kind of following the Jim Sterk presser that he's doing along with Jeff Long, the KU athletic director, and they're both talking about how optimistic they are about a football season both being played and hopefully getting finished. So how could I not be optimistic as well? Well, you can be not optimistic by realizing how many players are contacting COVID right now and having to be quarantined and sit out and the possibility of them spreading into an entire team where entire teams have to forfeit either games or the entire season. But you can still be optimistic. All right, well, uh, let's have a good show tonight. <laughs> Listen, so to, to be totally uh, fair to you, uh, I will respond to your pessimism with my optimism, which is this. Most of those players contracted it while they were back at home, and then they showed up back on campus, and it was like, oh, wow, a lot of these guys had COVID. Um, and then they get on campus, and my hope is, and Nate, this is 100% hope. I don't know if, how much I believe it, but it is hope from my end. I think that the safest place for these kids right now is going to be when they arrive back Agreed. on campus. Um, they will be in rooms that are under such control and so clean that they won't know what to do with themselves. The facilities will be cleaned unlike anything you've ever seen before. And they already do a good job of that in mm -hmm. general, especially with the sports that are typically making the money the revenue sports so 
I do think they are going to have the best opportunity possible to be able to finish these seasons. That being said, the virus doesn't care how careful you are. It can take one random jog that you have around the campus and suddenly you've contracted it and you've given it to four mm-hmm. of your friends. So it, it's going to be difficult. There is certainly no question about that. But I, at the time, I'm going to remain optimistic because it's all we've got in this world right now. It is all we have and we need to cling to every stread, uh, strain of uh, positivity that we could possibly get. Did you see that um, at least Ohio State, the Ohio State, um, is having it, both its students and its athletes, <laughs> student athletes, um, sign a waiver uh, to come back to campus, saying that you they will not have uh, cause or throw liability basically at Ohio State for contacting COVID while on the premises. Did you see that? I did see that. Um, I'm going to be interested to see if that is adopted elsewhere. It continues. It, the fact that they're doing it for the students as well, I think is the way they're going to get away with this, but yes. it continues to make me wonder if we are headed down a road of student athletes being looked at as employees, because that certainly sounds like something you would do with an employee much more so than something you would do with a typical student. It does. And that's why they're sending it to the students as well. And I think a lot of the initial pushback, and maybe this is just me reading tea leaves, but it felt like people were kind of upset because they were interpreting the waiver as a substitution for doing anything to to stop COVID from spreading. And I'll tell you, again, I am not an attorney. I don't know the law anywhere. But you can't just not do something in a pandemic and say, oh, we're going to have just COVID-riddled cafeterias and dorm rooms and classrooms, but y'all come on back anyway. Like, you know, no, no, they're going to clean it. They are going to have sanitizing everywhere. They're going to do everything they're supposed to do. What they are doing, what it seems to me, is that they're saying, we fully understand that we can do everything in our power to keep the facilities clean, but we cannot stop 18 to 22-year-old kids doing whatever the hell they want to do and meeting up with each other and not maintaining social distancing and all that crap. So all they're doing is saying, we're going to do our part, and if you contract it anyway, you cannot hold us liable. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is going to be the tough part is when you get these kids back on campus, and let's let's localize it to Mizzou, right? Let's say that you've got um, the third-string tight end at Mizzou goes out to Harpo's on a Friday night, right? How can you stop that? You can't. There's there's you nothing can't. the team you can can't. do to prevent him from going to a bar. And is he for sure going to contract the virus if he goes there? Of course not. But it's possible that he does. Mm-hmm. And so these are the risks that you're taking by doing anything. And we do it on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what yep. you, you could go to the grocery store and end up getting it. You could mm-hmm. do everything correctly and suddenly you have a five-minute conversation with um, let's say the guy that's bringing you your mail, your mailman has a conversation <laughs> with you and he is, um, asymptomatic, but he carries the disease and suddenly you've got it. And it, there are so many different ways that this thing can pass and I don't want to get too far into it, but basically like there's, there's no way to truly put these kids in a bubble when they're on a campus where there are other students there and there are other things taking place at the same time that they're all going to be interested in going and doing. So it's going to be really difficult. And this is where Nate, I think that there's going to be a lot of um, intra team policing where Mm -hmm. the guys on the team are going to have to get on each other, especially during the season, about, hey, we got to be together on this. Either we're all in or we're not, and we're going to be all in. And if we are all in, we've all got to have that same mentality of, it's football season, we're focusing exclusively on football and school, and we're going to get this thing done for the fall. But it's going to be really difficult for them to maintain that all season. There's no question. It will. And, you know, spring is when a lot of those locker room leaders show themselves, and they really haven't had that opportunity. Uh, at Mizzou, obviously, we saw um, a bunch of players uh, from, you know, football and basketball um, unite together um, under, under, obviously, the extenuating circumstances that we're at, uh, got registered to vote, um, and had their voices be heard, and, and young uh, Martez Manuel uh, from Columbia, Rockbridge High School, uh, was one of those guys that helped organize that. So you can start seeing a little of this leadership starting to take place. You got to assume that, you know, guys like um, 
like a Nick Bolton or a Larry Roundtree are also kind of in the years of the younger guys say, hey, look, exactly what you said. It's us. We're, we're sticking together. We're not going to be stupid with our decisions. And you're going to see that leadership take a different form. You know, you see these leaders rise in a different way than what you usually see. But this is just it's another extenuating circumstance. It's another outside pressure. And these are what teams do. They rally around someone who unites them in this cause. Uh, and even if it's not spring football in the, in the wait <laughs> staff, um, it's something. And so I'm really curious, you know, when you see these things, who these leadership uh, people are, and what their voices are doing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's a good rallying cry, even in the toughest of times. It is. And it the other thing that you need from that, and you kind of mentioned how we saw there was leadership that took place on campus at Mizzou just a couple of weeks ago now. Um, it, it, it can't just be one guy, though. It can't be two guys. It's got to be within yeah. each of those rooms. So the running back mm-hmm. room, you've got Larry Roundtree, who seems to be a leader for those guys. Who's the guy on the offensive line who's going to take – full leadership of that role this year. I don't know what the answer mm-hmm. to that question is. Same thing for the receivers. Who's going to be the guy that steps up in that room? Who's going yeah. to be the guy on the defensive line? I would imagine that's probably Kobe Whiteside. Kobe Whiteside, yep. Nick Bolton has certainly stepped up as being that guy for the linebackers. Um, I would think a guy like Manuel, who is really young, maybe mm-hmm. has gotten into that spot for the defensive sure. backs. But, sure. I mean, you, you've you got some guys on the defensive side of the ball. The question now becomes, on offense, who's going to take advantage in those, in those rooms? Who's going to be the leadership guy that's speaking out and saying, hey, listen, we got to do the right things here. This, this can't mm-hmm. be just a bunch of guys kind of doing their own thing in a given night. We got to keep this inside of this room. And it's going to be harder than it's ever been before. Normally, Mm -hmm. you can find a way where once you get into that locker room, everything else outside of it, you can push to the wayside. It's not the case anymore. This year is going to be a lot different from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's little things that you start seeing now, and this is where you know it translates in August and September when you start seeing seeing the the guys on the field. So um, yeah, I'm glad to see that that the team is active and and having leaders pop up and, and taking action. I mean, it's, it's, it's just good to see. So, um, you know, and along the lines of, of, of players and specific players, you know, three days after we recorded uh, two weeks ago, uh, we had another commitment. And I swear to God, BK, it's like Eli Drinkwitz read or listened to our podcast or read my story about Florida recruiting and said, oh, yeah, watch <laughs> this. Because um, we just got another Florida guy, um, another defensive back, um, say it with me. He's tall, six three one eighty. Zayquan Reeves, uh, one of the best spell names I think that it's ever. Just throw in across. an X there because why not? <laughs> why not, man? Just do it. Uh, I wonder if he goes by Z or X. You know, I wonder what is. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. But um, yeah, we we've talked about the type. Uh, this is the type. Ryan Walters is is. Uh, the sir mix a lot of defensive backs. He likes them long. He likes them strong. He wants them to get their friction on. And we've got 6'3", 180, Zaquan Reeves joining. That was terrible. Oh, my God. I can't believe I said that. I loved it. Um, I didn't see it coming from you, and it surprised <laughs> me in every possible way. And, man, did I enjoy that. Ooh, well, let me take it one step further. If oh it's boy. a defensive back, it's going to be sir picks a lot. <laughs> Are we sure? Because that seems uh, to have been an issue in recent years. It's certainly not coached, but um, it's, it's implied. Um, wow, this got off the rails quickly. Um, okay, so Saquon Reeves, uh, as far as film goes, uh, very athletic dude, uh, very very tall. It's rare that you see a corner um, tower over anybody, and that's kind of the one big thing that I took away from watching his films. Like he is just noticeably taller when you're sitting, you know, 150 feet away. Noticeably taller than the guys that he is defending, which is unique. Um, BK, I don't know if he translates to corner or safety. It really doesn't matter. But um, any thoughts that you have on the the recent recruitment of Mr. Reeves? Yeah, I, I'm going to follow on your path of he's really tall. Uh, I wrote a story on this for Rock M Nation last week. 16 of Mizzou's 20 defensive back commits since 2016 have been at least six foot tall. Seven of the 10 cornerback commits since 2016 are listed at six foot or taller. Among the three that did not reach that threshold, that played the cornerback position, two have already transferred. So basically, (laughs) if you are six foot or or if you are under six foot, you probably can't play corner at Mizzou. 
it has wow. become a theme under Ryan Walters. It is very clear what he's looking for at the position. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be good as a corner. But he's got a threshold, and there are certain NFL teams that, and the NFL is where you see more of this, where they've got thresholds because there are so many talented players that are coming in, and it's a way to kind of filter Mm -hmm. out some of the guys that you don't want to look at. But for colleges, it can work the same way, where you're looking at so many guys scattered across America, and you're like, how do I determine if this... 5'11", 4'6", guy from Alabama is better than this 6-foot guy that's a 4'5", from Arkansas, right? How can you possibly tell which of those two was a better player? Well, if you're Mizzou, maybe you just filter both of them out and say, we're not looking at those guys. We're going to look at the guys that are 6'0", or above, and that's going to be a threshold for us. It reminds me a lot of the Seahawks when they were going through their run of the great secondaries And they started this trend, really, in the NFL of the Legion of Boom. And you had Richard Sherman, you had Brandon Browner, you had Byron Maxwell, you had all these different guys that were between like 6'1 and 6'3, and that's really what they looked for in their corners. It doesn't always work, but if you get them at their peak, it can work. And the other thing, Nate, and you kind of mentioned this for this specific cornerback recruit, it can also lead to a guy that can eventually move to safety. If it doesn't work at corner and you're tall and you're bigger and you're stronger, you've got the ability to move to safety, and now you've got another defensive back that can cover on the back end, which is never a bad thing. It's not. So that makes uh, Mr. Reeves is the fourth defensive back in the 2021 class. You think they viewed that as a need? Uh, You (laughs) might think. um, I mean, really – if you are looking at this, if you are recruiting, you are drink stuff, it's defensive line and it's defensive back and defensive line because what, eight guys graduate after this year and defensive back because there's only one, two, three, four, five, six guys on the roster right now. So, um, you know, it's who knows where these guys shake out as far as position. But um, if you want to stop the passer, which is kind of what football is becoming, you need to rush the said passer and you need some guys to stop the guys he's going to throw it to and if you want a specific type and you know what you're looking for and you have you know you have a bunch of those guys on call and you can call them up and get them in do it get your scheme get your culture fixed and um, establish that quickly and bring in a bunch of new guys to help implement that and be be a new thing the the new zoo as we're calling it um, so expect more defensive backs coming in. Again, Tyler Hibbler out of St. Louis will probably probably commit on the 23rd to Mizzou. Who knows? Um, but there's there's more offers out there. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, we could conceivably see seven or eight guys come in in this defensive back class, which is unprecedented, really. It is. And I, I also – the final thing that I've got on Reeves is just – We mentioned this on our last show two weeks ago now, and it continues to be a trend here. This is not a guy that's from Missouri. And one of the worries early on was, are these guys just, they're kind of holding a spot for their hometown team where, worst case scenario, I'm okay with going to Mizzou because at least it's only an hour and a half, two hours away for a lot of these guys. Well, that's not the case for Zaquan Reeves. He he very clearly had a relationship with this staff, and that's why he decided to commit. So, any questions that Mizzou, Mizzou fans had about the ability to recruit at this level, a lot of those questions have been answered pretty quick, pretty quickly for drink. And mm-hmm. not with – we haven't had all of them answered. There's, we're still very early in this process. But the recruiting questions seem to be kind of going to the wayside a little quicker than I personally expected them to with the way that he's kind of been able to open up this class so far. I am still just just – just slightly hesitant on the positivity because I'm just a, sure. a curmudgeonly old man. Um, and this guy's a five-five-three star, right? Like he, it's he not is. like it's a huge uh, coup that they were able to pull him out of Florida. But I, I do like that they were able to pull a kid out of Florida at this time when when so many of their previous players were coming out of Missouri, and it was the in-state guys that you just you didn't know exactly what the um, what the reason it was behind their their commitment. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and I decommit season is going to be very noticeable and it's mm-hmm. going to hit when the games start, you know, September. And so of the of the 11 guys we have right now, you just look at it and go which ones go and you're, you know, it's going to be the higher ranked guys, so Travion Ford, Dalen Carnell, 
and the out-of-state guys. So, you know, you're looking at Davian Sistrunk. You're looking at, you know, Gavin McKay or Zaquan Reeves, you know, uh, Darius Jackson. Like, you just, that's where your mind goes when you're thinking decommit. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I, I, I want all these guys to stick around because I, I love them to be in black and gold. But you can't have over a 1,000 kids commit so far this this year when at this point last year there were 400 and expect not to have a massive decommit season. So it's going to happen. I don't know when and where, uh, which guys are going to be leaving, but it is, we, Missouri's not going to be immune to it, I, I promise. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that hits. But for now, I'm very excited that sure. we're getting a lot of opportunities to prove my Florida theory wrong. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, drink you know with – with his stint at NC State and then at App State, both of those schools record, recruit Florida very hard. So he is familiar with a lot of those guys there. So I think this, you know, whether they stick around or not, we could probably see a lot more Florida kids joining the roster over the next couple of years. By the way, do you know, because they said, what was it? It was Carolina, Chicago, Denver, and Texas, right, were the four places mm-hmm. that they really wanted to hit hard outside of the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many players have committed so far from those four places? Uh, zero. Well, one from one from Texas. Yep. And that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's it <laughs> so like, far. They're I all just, Missouri. <laughs> I find that interesting after everything that we've heard about those four places in particular, and may, maybe those are long-term. Um, I had to think goals, so. yeah. right? And I, I would yeah. imagine that is certainly the case. But um, and I'm not going to knock them for taking a bunch of in-state kids because that's basically what it's been for the most mm-hmm. part so far. But I do find it interesting that so far it's been mostly what we saw under Barry in terms of what the actual locations are for most of these kids. couple kids from Big Ten country, uh, Memphis, you got a couple of Florida, mostly in-state. It, it's just interesting how much it does kind of look like a Barry Odom class from that perspective, the locations itself. That's um, it, interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure out the trend, you know, in a couple of years um, where we end up. That Michigan pipeline that Odom used, that really started clicking like year two or three. Yep. So it, it does take some time. Uh, but, yeah, I've noticed that too. <laughs> I also wondered how many kids from Colorado are like – I mean, I don't want to say Missouri-worthy, but like SEC-worthy, you know. Um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I have not spent one iota of looking at Colorado high school football. <laughs> uh, but that's another question. Don't lie. That's not that true. You looked at a lot of Colorado high school football. Okay, I looked at all of it. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Um, <laughs> I've looked at some. I will I will admit. But, you know, one of the, when I did that Colorado piece, one of the things that stuck in my head was like, how many of these guys are actually, you know, game changers? And yep. it's, it's not a lot. It's really not. Now, part of that is there's a lot of them are still young, but – you know, it's just eh. we'll see. We'll see. I'm not. Yeah, we're not calling the Chicago or Colorado pipeline dead before it's you know before it's born, but um, certainly something to keep an eye on. <laughs> so now we get to what I will admit I am just freaking excited to talk about, and I could go on and on forever because I did a crap ton of research. But we're gonna we're gonna keep this to podcast one hour form here. Um, I had a I had a random question in my head. Um, when I was looking at, I was watching old games, um, old games from 2019. I was watching a lot of Clemson, and I asked myself, Clemson was like the the big riser, the big team of the the 2010s, right? When, when Dabo took over in 09, and he built that program to national championship status as we got to the end of the the 2010s. And I was like, could could Missouri be the Clemson of 2020? Right, the 2020s. Can can Missouri be that? So to answer that question, I had to figure out. Well, how did Clemson do it? And as far as I can tell, I mean, it's the answer is always going to be recruiting based. Let's let's get that out of the way. It's always based off of your recruiting. So to build a national championship contending team, it requires excellent recruiting. So how how do you get that though? Well, it takes number one, a consistent scheme and culture. Number two, getting players drafted in the NFL. Number three elite quarterback play let's call it what it is so what i did and what i've shared with bk here is i looked at clemson's recruiting um from 2009 all the way through this last class of 2020 and then i looked at their nfl draft picks starting in the 2009 nfl draft and ending in this most recent 2000. 
2020 draft and I charted out all of the recruits and what stars they were and what positions they play and all the draft picks and where they were picked and how many just to give myself a better idea. And I think it comes down to this. And BK, you you are a bigger NFL fan than I am, so you know a little bit better how this works. But as far as I can tell, the NFL uses the draft to supplement their passing game and their ability to stop the passing game on defense. Yeah, the, the NFL has basically become, can you throw the football, can you stop the pass when the other team throws the football? And if you can do those two things, you've got a good shot of winning. And why wouldn't you? With all right. the new rules and the penalties, like it, it's more efficient to pass than it is to run, just flat out. And that's true in the college game, too. So, you know, Clemson you know, gets lumped in with Alabama and Ohio State and, 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 you know, all that stuff. But, like, recruiting-wise and what they're getting into the draft, it's not it's not all that different from, like, a, a really good team, like an Oregon, right, or, you know, or a Michigan, um, you know, for, for the past, what, from 2009 until 2020. They had, say, 13, 19, 33, 42, 49. They had 54 guys drafted in basically 11 years. That's not like a crazy high number. Um, and, and where were those guys? What, what, what were they? What were the guys that were drafted? Well, they had 13 first-round guys, but they also had 14 fourth-round guys. Like, it's not like they're all going in the first and second round. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see how this – they almost look like a, kind of a – any other team, any other college team, nothing, nothing, not like a like a multinational championship winning team. Um, but who are the guys they send into the NFL? It is overwhelmingly passing game <laughs> and yep. stopping the passer. It's quarterback. They had two quarterbacks drafted. It's receiver. They've had ten receivers picked um, out of all their three guys. Three in picked, the first round. Drafted. Three in the first round. One in the second round. Um, they've had almost no offensive linemen drafted. They've had almost no linebackers drafted, but they've had eight defensive ends drafted, eight defensive tackles drafted, and tying with the receivers, 10 cornerbacks drafted. That's pretty noticeable what they're sending into the NFL and what kind of talent they're attracting. And you know what's interesting about the corners is a lot of them have been the long guys. Like as somebody who is an NFL fan, and I can tell you kind of looking back on what those cornerbacks were like going into the draft, most of them were known as the side speed athleticism, like you're trying to maybe mold them into what you want them to be in the NFL, and that's why they go as high as they have gone. Um, so the fact that Mizzou is kind of fold, uh, following in that model is interesting nonetheless. I think the thing that really stands out to me, I'm looking right now at the guys that were selected in the first round by uh, out of Clemson over the last decade. Listen to the guys that were some of their top draft picks in recent years. Cleveland Furrell, defensive line, of course. Sammy Watkins, wide receiver. Mike Williams, wide receiver. Isaiah Simmons, defensive back. Vic Beasley, defensive end. Deshaun Watson, which we all know that's that's the guy that really brought them up to new heights. Christian Wilkins, a defensive tackle. A.J. Terrell, cornerback. Dexter Lawrence, defensive tackle. Shaq Lawson, defensive end. The reason why I bring all these up is because it's frankly not all that dissimilar from Mizzou's list of guys that were drafted exactly. in the first round over the last decade. Like, exactly. It, it's, it's basically me looking at, like, switch Cleland Farrell for Alden Smith. Switch yep. Sammy Watkins for Jeremy, Jeremy Macklin. Macklin. Yep. Um, switch Vic Beasley for uh, Shane Ray. He was the first round defensive end mm-hmm. that goes there. Switch Deshaun Watson, and obviously you've got to fix the well, fact that one of them was a good quarterback in the NFL and the other wasn't. <laughs> but for yeah, Blaine Gabbard. Blaine Gabbard, yeah. Like, you've, you've got a lot of similarities between what Mizzou has produced in the NFL in the first round. The difference, of course, is the depth. Like, the depth is there in terms of the second and third round picks that are kind of those um, those productive players that are really, really good college players that maybe don't have that top-end talent that you look for in the NFL, and that's what Mizzou needs. And that's where, as you mentioned, the recruiting comes in. 
because that four-star that might be a quote-unquote failed four-star recruit at the college level still becomes a good college player, whereas the quote-unquote failed three-star ends up potentially being a backup for the majority of his career. And that, yeah. that's, that's where it really does matter what the quality of players that you're getting out of high school. And, and that's, I guess to me, that's, that is the difference between a Missouri and a Clemson. But, you know, when we think about like a national championship roster, you think that they're littered with five stars. And that's really not the case. Now, Clemson's a little bit unique. They turn guys away. They turn four and five stars away if they don't think it's a good culture fit. So you can still win national championships and, and be picky about who you want to bring in. But of, I mean, you, were, you are looking at it, so you have the number. But before you were looking at it, how many five stars do you think Clemson would have recruited over the past 10 years? So there's what? An average of like 15 a year? 20, yeah. Yeah, so 15 to 25. Let's say if there's 25 years, there's 250 over the course of a 10-year span, right? Um, yeah. I would think that they, if I'm just a casual college football fan, I would think they get probably a fifth of them. So let's go sure. like 50 yeah. over that yeah. span. That's a reasonable thought, especially given their performance. They've only had 22, 22 five stars. Now, four were quarterbacks. They had one running back, four receivers, two offensive tackles, three defensive ends, three defensive tackles, three outside linebackers, and two corners. That's so mostly it. the places where they're getting players drafted really high, too, which is interesting. Exactly. It's not a lot, but it's who they're sending into the NFL. Now, here is the thing that really stood out to me. Because, yeah, there's only so many five stars to go around. You're fighting Ohio State and Alabama and Florida and all that crap. They've had more three stars in the past 10 years than they've had four stars. They had 117 three stars, 108 four stars. Now, that's barely you know more, but it still counts. You would think that that would be inversed. It is not. And a lot of those three-star guys end up in the NFL. Vic Beasley was a three-star tight end. People forget that. <laughs> they turned him into a first-round defensive end. I didn't know now, that, honestly. Yeah. Now, Missouri's done you know stories like that, too. Thank Charles Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, but they it's not that they are just out-recruiting you star-wise, throwing all the stars they can on the field, and then, you know, okay, well, we can just win by trotting out, and we'll lose one or two here or there. No. They get a lot of high-end talent, and they supplement that with low four-stars and high three-stars, just like a Missouri would, just like any middle-of-the-pack team would. So what's the difference, BK? It's culture. It's scheme. We've talked – I don't know if you've ever looked at the Clemson coaching staff – but that staff has been together for so long, well, this year aside, that almost all those guys have been there for the entire run. Um, in 2009, they started off with Kevin Steele as a defensive coordinator, who's now at Auburn and awesome, and they had Billy Napier as their offensive coordinator. And both of those guys failed. They failed at Clemson. And Dabo Swinney was not afraid to make a switch, and he brought in Jeff Scott, and he brought in Brent Venables. And they, or sorry, Chad Morris and Jeff Scott first and foremost, and then and 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 Brent Venables, and then they kept those schemes for the rest of the run. They didn't lose anybody. They didn't change anything up. They had a style. They had a scheme. They knew what they wanted to do, and they recruited guys who could do that thing. And it took a couple years, but it worked. And it, it was that patience, it was that loyalty, and that was ability to say, oh, hey, Dabo's losing seven games a year. We'll keep him on. We'll give him a chance. And lo and behold, in the end, I would say that it's worked out. I, yeah, I would say that it's worked out pretty well for them. Um, Venables in particular is the guy that really stands out to me. And before we mm-hmm. kind of started getting going with this, you, you mentioned there's a few things that you've got to get um, to go your way in order to become the next Clemson. And one of those is luck. It and is. Yes. that's the part that is luck. It wasn't assured that Venables was going to be there this long. It wasn't assured for them that Dabo would stick around this long. But they did. And they got lucky as a part of that. Now Clemson has become such a powerhouse at this point, And they have so much monetary resources. And such a good recruiting base. That it makes sense that they would stick around. In particular Dabo. But... Venables is just an interesting dude who seems to be totally consent being a defensive coordinator, and that didn't have to be the case. And you don't know Mm -hmm. if that's going to be the case when you hire him, 
So I, I think that's one thing that really sticks out to me is with Venables and their defense that they've had that's been so consistent from the from from the start to where they are today. Um, we talk a lot about the quarterbacks. We talk a lot about what the offensive pass catchers have done. That defense has been an absolute menace on the other side of the ball, and they probably don't get the credit that they deserve, especially on the defensive line and some of the blitz packages that he comes up with because they make life a living hell for the opposing offenses that they go up against on a week-to-week mm-hmm. basis. Yeah. I mean, and he was the difference maker. We 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 knew Venables back in his Oklahoma days, and he was a pain in the butt then, and he's a pain in the butt now. And he's just he's very good at deploying the guys in a way that needs to be deployed. And even in, within his scheme, he's a little adaptable. At, you know, like an Isaiah Simmons, right? A three-star kid out of Kansas. It's like this dude can play four different positions. I'm going to play him at four different positions, right? There was one. Uh, gosh, I think it was in the semifinal playoff game. Um, was it against Notre Dame? I don't remember. But one of them, he he dropped ten and rushed one, and that one guy got the sack. <laughs> and it's like he can, he he comes up with these really interesting ways of doing things. So he's smart, he's adaptable, but it all fits in what he wants to do, and he can teach really well, and he can get guys coached up and make make them better. So having that consistent scheme and that consistent culture and that same coach in your ear all the time really makes a difference. And then the last thing, the last thing. And this is so easy to say and completely different to to actually, you know, perform with, but elite quarterback play. Just that's it. Because if you look at Clemson, when they started off with like a like a Taj Boyd, who was good. He got drafted, but you know, he's not lighting the world on fire. Or a Cole Stout. Remember Cole Stout? Does that name ring a bell to you? No, nope, nope, I don't remember him at all, honestly. Goofy looking white kid, like he could sling it, uh, but he was not, you know, he was not set for Chad Morris's, you know, high school spread and shred. Like that was, no, that was not it. But he was a placeholder between Taj Boyd and Deshaun Watson. Because I don't, you know, even five years ago, Deshaun Watson was an injury liability. We had no idea if he could play a full season. And then he did. And then they beat Alabama in the <laughs> championship. So, like, the kid was awesome. And, and he was he was an elite quarterback, and then he made it to the NFL. And then you go from Deshaun Watson to Kelly Bryant, who, again, was more of a placeholder, to Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence is, you know, God's quarterback walking on earth. So you can have a couple of valleys, right, where, oh, it's just merely a good high three-star. Oh, it's just merely a, a good four-star. But you need to land those elite quarterback prospects um, to lift your entire team up and make those four and five star receivers, you know, be able to catch awesome balls. Make the that offensive line, which is mediocre, um, look awesome because you're making the right reads and making the the correct calls at the line and all that sort of stuff. So that's all, BK. That's all you really need. Can I throw one bit of cold water on uh, this whole idea now that we've gotten to the end of your spiel? Sure. And the last, so since 2010, do you know how many times Clemson has ranked outside of the top 20 in recruiting classes? <laughs> uh, how many times they've ranked outside the top 10? Top 20. Uh, the top 20. Um, I think it would be zero. One. One. 2009 was Two- the last time. 2017, they were 22 oh. in the country. There you go. So as much as there are other factors absolutely that go into it, and it is not exclusively about recruiting, I don't want to suggest that it is because it's not. And we saw it with Gary Pinkle. It can be done without having elite recruiting. It still happens to be typically the recruiting monsters that end up becoming the next Clemson's. And mm-hmm. if Mizzou is going to become that, you don't have to be top five every year because Clemson's not. They are pretty regularly, at least at the beginning of the decade when they started this run, in the 13, 14, a couple of years, like 17, that range. Yeah. But yeah. you got to be up there. You got to improve on the a good year is 25 for Mizzou. Now a good year has to become 15 for Mizzou they have to recruit more like Tennessee and less like Mizzou and that's where they make that next jump because if you get Tennessee recruiting with good coaching that could become a really good program uh unfortunately for Tennessee (laughs) they haven't exactly had good coaching in recent memory yeah 
and one one thing before we move on. This is this is the dark side, right? We've talked about the light side. Let's talk about the dark. It also comes down to the fact that you need to organize your boosters and get that that yes. money into those kids' pockets. And that's something that Missouri has not been good at. Missouri fans are very content for paying, uh, d- donating $5 and expecting a $50 product and complain when they don't get that. Well, guys, it requires a lot of people showing up consistently. It requires a lot of people with money funneling that money to kids, athletic kids, and their families to convince them to come here. And until we have a coach who can unite our booster structure, until we have a coach who can make sure that those kind of payments come through, we're just not going to be hanging with those types of recruiting schools. So um, that's the dark side to this whole thing. It <laughs> is. I know everyone, everyone wants to stick their head in the sand like, oh, Missouri would never do that. Missouri does it currently. We're just not very good at it. That's all. Yeah, well, it, college football is a little shady. And this is this should not be breaking news to people, but uh, this is the way that it works. And... Um, for Mizzou to get up into that echelon of a team, they they need to improve their recruiting. This is not breaking news. Um, they have already re- improved from where they previously were under Eli Drinkwitz. They've just got to take another step entirely to be able to get to the level of a program, such as Clemson, even if it's not the level of Clemson. Absolutely. Well, uh, so that's, uh, that's a little foray into the, can it happen? What, what can happen? I don't know. But... I want to get to the actual stuff too, because I have been just going through our our 2020 uh, season previews for our, all of the opponents that we're playing. Uh, and I think we left off last time with South Carolina, so now we're doing Eastern Michigan and Tennessee tonight. Um, BK, we, we we played Eastern Michigan in 2016 and, and blew the fun line. game. Yeah, it was, it was set a lot of records in that game. Um, what what do you know about Eastern Michigan other than that one game we played them a couple of years ago? I know that they were atrocious before Craig Carton got there. Or uh, Chris Creighton is that his name? Mm-hmm. The yep. co- the new the football coach there. Uh, I know they were atrocious before him um, because I remember learning a lot about their history in that game, and I really <laughs> found myself like again, kind of from that game. Really liking his story and what he has built this program into. Um, they're certainly not a powerhouse by any stretch, but they've gone from like one of the worst teams in college football to being at least somewhat respectable now. Um, so that that's that's my extent of my knowledge for this program. <laughs> My official term is feisty. I go. like feisty teams. Uh, it doesn't mean you win every game, but it just means that anytime someone plays you, it's annoying as hell. And if you can't be super good, if you can't be winning division titles or conference titles or national championships, if you can just be the team that nobody wants to play, that's a pretty good place to play. Uh, and yeah, Chris Crane's a super interesting dude. He is, you know, before he got to Eastern Michigan, he was never in the FBS. He was a player coach in the Swedish Football League when he was 23. <laughs> he coached and quarterbacked his team to a Swedish championship. I don't know. I don't know what that would be, but you know, they, he did it. Um, and you know, he, he, he took the job and that's, it's a job that really nobody likes to take because it's a dead end. They've had zero all Americans ever (laughs) zero. They, they don't have, I think they only have winning records against two teams in all of FBS. It's Wyoming and San Jose state. Um, and before 2014, they'd only been to one bowl game and they've been playing football for almost a hundred years. So it's a really tough place to play. You're a small school. It's in Ypsilanti, Michigan, but that is basically Ann Arbor. So you are drowned out by Michigan. There's a lot of Michigan talent, but everybody in the Big Ten recruits Michigan and everybody in the MAC recruits Michigan. You have no history to sell. You have really nothing, you know, if anybody goes to you, they're also going to see Ann Arbor. Uh, it's just, it's a tough place that doesn't have a lot of funding. And Chris Creighton walked in and he's like, we got to establish a culture. So he put gray field turf in their stadium <laughs> he called the stadium the factory they knocked down cinder blocks when they enter the field like he's done a lot of cool cultural stuff um and he's also improved the quality of the team now i say all that to say this we should beat them we should we did you know a couple of years ago um and and the reason i say that is because they're going through some massive turnover right now uh, hey, that they're, sounds they're, familiar i can relate I to that <laughs> i know yeah like uh their offense was super good last year but they lose just about everybody who played on offense um their defense has been really good for the past couple years but you know 
it's still a Mac defense. And I, I that's so derogatory when, when I say that, when other people say that. I hate it. But it, that is what it is. They recruit at a lower level. They have fewer funds. This is a game where they are getting paid to play us. This is an expected win, and it's going to be tough because our offense is starting over as well. But kind of like what we talked about Vanderbilt, these are the types of te- teams you have to beat anytime, but especially when you're Eli Drinkwitz in your very first year. This is a game they have to win. Point blank period, they got to win it. Um, you can't be losing if you're Eli Drinkwitz to Eastern Michigan. It is really that simple. Um, if if he were to lose this game, it would be a rough start to the season and a rough way to introduce yourself to Mizzou fans after what has been. And I, I feel like I've repeated this a number of times, but I think it's important to continue restating as good of an introduction to Mizzou fans as you could possibly have. Um, <laughs> Central Arkansas should be a win. Eastern Michigan should be a win. At a very minimum, Mizzou should start the season 2-2, two and two, and frankly, they should start the year 3-1 and one because Vandy is one of the first four games as well. So, if you can at least do that with those three games that I just mentioned, Central Arkansas, Vandy, and Eastern Michigan all coming at home, at the very minimum, you've got a little bit of the wind in your sails as you start to go uh, out of the first quarter of the season. That That's what they need to do. So, it, it, it has to be a win. I... I know that there is more thought that should go into a game like this, but frankly, for me um, and for most casual Mizzou fans, there won't be. It should be as simple as Mizzou should win that game. It should. And, you know, Eastern Michigan returns the seventh worst amount of production from last year. Now, Wyoming was in a very similar situation in 2019 and still beat us. But the difference is that this will be at home, and this is not going to be the first game. So... And that Wyoming the, game, man, I, God, just weird. It was weird. I will never live that one down. I, I left that game. I'm like, how the hell did they lose that game? It's just so plays. much stupid stuff that happened in that game. Three plays, the two yep. big runs by the quarterback and their running back, and then the fumble at the goal line that yep. was returned for a field goal. That, that was it. Three plays, three plays. Um, I hated that game get, so get, much. Get it pissed me. I, I, I got in so much trouble because I literally wrote the next week. Mizzou's still good. <laughs> No, I, I had to reintroduce beyond the box score to the Rockham readership on maybe one of the most embarrassing losses of the past three <laughs> years. So, like, I feel you. I feel you. And, and the um, funny thing is, like, they, they were still good. They were 5-1 and one after were. that. <laughs> they should have been 6-0. and oh, and, and then we, we know the story. Yeah. We, just as an aside note, something happened, right? Yes. Something happened. We someone's got to write a book on what happened in that locker room because there's no way that you play like you've had a rash of injuries without having a rash of injuries. The team that showed up to play Ole Miss is not the same team that showed up to play Vanderbilt. I will never be convinced of that. It, it was not the same team. I don't know what it was. I have no idea. I legitimately, like, even if I, if I could give you a hint as to what it was, I would be happy to do so. I don't know what it was. I, I legitimately do not know, and it will puzzle me for the rest of my life until I find out what it was because mm. I wrote after Ole Miss a love letter to their you offensive did. coordinator because <laughs> he was doing everything I've ever wanted to see from the offense that included the weapons that they had last year. He was finding ways to get their running backs out in space in creative way. Like, the screen game was unbelievable in that game, and then yes. suddenly they reverted back to, like, this 1970s off that was just like hey we're gonna run a slant we're gonna run an out and i was like what is this what what am i watching i sorry i i it's bad i don't understand what happened last year i really don't man i don't understand someone's it. got someone's got to come out and talk and it's going to take a couple of years because these kids got to cycle out of the program but someone's going to talk and say what happened and they it's all going to make plenty of sense but we're just all in the dark they scored 38 points against old miss and then in the next four games combined, they scored 27. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And I understand oh. they were playing a couple of good teams, but they also played Vanderbilt in that time. I, I'll never so, get So it. percentile performance that, that, that Bill C covers is like, okay, what, what, how good were you, right? What was the percentile performance of each game? Well, Wyoming was at 58%. West Virginia, 95 as a team. South SEMO, 95% as a team. 
South Carolina, 53% as a, as a team. Okay, that was bad, but we still won. Troy, they played at the 99th percentile. Ole Miss, 77th percentile. Vandy, 17. Kentucky, 15. Georgia, 30. Florida, 36. Tennessee, 30. Arkansas, 35. That looks like half the team <laughs> died. And you pulled a bunch of kids out of the stands and said, Good luck! Not to make light of the current situation, but it's as if COVID was taking place oh, at the God, middle of yeah. last season. <laughs> like half the sea, half the damn team ended up getting exposed to it. It's like that didn't happen. Then what did? I I I, I'm, I don't I don't I don't get it. But anyway, so uh, the anyway. 2020 schedule after <laughs> Eastern Michigan, I think they've got Tennessee. Tennessee is up. Yeah, I you know Tennessee last year I I, I called them the the pit. Uh, like Pittsburgh, the pit of the SEC, uh, because it's a team that's won national championships way in the past, recruited decently well, has a good you know overall winning percentage, but hasn't done anything recently. Um, and to their credit, they they certainly exceeded that. They won eight games last year, and they got a lot of flack at the beginning of the year because they <laughs> they lost to Georgia State, and then they lost to BYU in overtime, uh, and then they lost to Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Which there's nothing wrong with that, but when you're Tennessee and you've starting two and five. And those two wins are Chattanooga and Mississippi State. <laughs> like, things suck. Um, and I, I looked at this, their schedule from, you know, a ranked team, a winning record teams, you know, records, uh, SP+. And, like, really what it comes down to is that in August, September, and October, they were 3-5. and five, And then the calendar flipped to November, and they did an outright Odomine <laughs> and went 5-0. and oh. That was the difference. They just, they well, just what, what had previously been known as an Odoming. <laughs> Last year was a little different kind of Odoming. A little different. A little different. <laughs> and, like, it, I guess the Odoming really is, like, they just beat the hell out of bad teams. And it just so happened for two years all the bad teams were in November. This was not the case. Like, Kentucky was 35th. Missouri was 39th. You know, Indiana, in a bowl game, which Odom could never win, was 23rd. <laughs> like, it was legit. Um, so... You know, this is two seasons, right? We got one season of them going five and seven and kind of being overmatched by playing a lot of youth. We got last year when that youth was a little bit older and went eight and five. You know, I don't know if you remember this. They had Alabama on the ropes in the third quarter. It was uh, it was like 10 to 13, I think, and like Tennessee was going to uh, go in for the end zone on a dive, and Jared Gar- Garantano misread the play and like tried to just – take the ball and put it over the goal line and he got slapped away and then Alabama returned it for a touchdown and then Jeremy Pruitt like grabbed Garantano's helmet and like yelled at him mm-hmm. and everybody got you know because that's not good and then Garantano threw a pick and like it just all fell apart but like this is a young team that could push good teams you know at least Alabama to the limit uh, and they really uncorked one at the end of the year so the, the the downside of all of this is that Tennessee was really good at the end of the year which is when you want to be good and then returns like 68% of that team. And then they've buoyed it with a top 10 recruiting class, which they have been recruiting at for the past two years. So there's a lot of ouch town coming our way from, from Rocky Top. And, I, I, I again, you can't do anything off of two years, but all the tea leaves say that Tennessee is headed in the right direction. So I think Tennessee's headed in the right direction. I, I actually do think, despite the fact that I don't really like the guy, that Jeremy Pruitt's going to be a good coach. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think they're going to beat Mizzou next year. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there right now. That being said, there's one thing that I got a bone to pick with you. Um, You like Jim Chaney? I love Jim Chaney. Jim Chaney is awful. Like, just awful. You're awful. You're awful. (laughs) I, I remember watching those Georgia offenses, and I was just so befuddled, man, because they would have, like... 10 of their 11 dudes within the box. And it was yeah. like, what are you doing? Everybody is, they're gearing up for the run. And then guess what they were going to do on third and they were six. Run. And they they're going to run. Five yards and punt on fourth down. I <laughs> I hate Jim Chaney so much. I, I yeah. hate his unimaginative 1945 um, oh. fullback using style of offense okay okay i just okay. i'm do you out remember, on jim cheney do you remember 2012 missouri tennessee uh yes that was the game that i went to actually in Ooh. knoxville the double overtime yeah. game right D- uh, oh, it was like triple overtime yeah 
That Tennessee air raid was also Jim Cheney. Really? Yes. He has he and he got his start at Purdue. Well, was Joe that timeout though? Brees. Time out though. Was that Jim Cheney or was that Derek Dooley? Let's be honest here. Dooley's an offense mastermind. <laughs> Your words are false. <laughs> he, no, Jim Cheney. He is, okay. I'm out on he, Jim Cheney. You're not gonna. You're not gonna. Fine. You're not gonna correct it's me. Fine. On this one. It's fine. You you can have your wrong opinion, and I will have mine. But basically, what Cheney does is he comes in. He's the he's Mister Fix It, right? He's like, "What do you got? I'll run that." Okay. And he it takes you from the bottom of the barrel, and he puts you like somewhere in the middle in a couple of years, and then he gets you to the top. Like I, those Georgia offenses that are super boring, I get it. They also ranked seventh and tenth in SP plus. In those two years, so yeah, but that like, was that was the talent. Let's be honest. Sometimes the numbers can like sure the the a hundred percent the talent was there and they got sure. the production. But if you had a if you had a guy that was willing to open things up, I do I dare I say I think the offense could have been better. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So I think yes. he, let, let me let me clarify. In recent years, the modern-day Jim Cheney that I've seen, let's say over the last five <laughs> years, not a fan of, because now okay. I'm realizing that he was also the guy that uh, was in charge of Drew Brees' system at yes. Purdue, and I, yep. I kind of want to take back a few of the things that I've said about Jim Cheney. <laughs> when you put him in, in Cro-Magnum, Gurr, run the ball offense, yes, anyone who runs that is is boring and Get get the heck out! Read the room, man. Everyone's going spread. Read the room. But yeah, like, what's going on? He was the guy that did it. <laughs> now he's this guy. I it's don't what understand. they had. It's what they had. He, whatever. <laughs> that's not the point. Okay, if you don't like him for the past five years, that's totally fine. But I'm telling you, he's going to make this this offense really good, and they're paired with an excellent defensive mind. Two really good, excellent defensive minds, actually. So it's it's a really good pairing, and it just it, with all the recruiting that they're doing, it just it means a lot of pain if they really. Put this thing together, for and me. they've got Chris Winkie and one of the best recruiting guys in the country, and T. Martin. So yep. um, they they actually yep. have, in all seriousness, they've put together a hell of a staff in terms of like combining really good scheme guys with really good recruiters. Um, mm-hmm. And Chris Winkie, for those that don't know, is like considered to be one of the best quarterback coaches in the country now, which kind of came out yeah. of nowhere. Um, but he's the guy that everybody goes to work with now before they go with one of the Palmers, whenever they're getting ready to go into the NFL draft. It's like a, a, it's like a rite of passage before they go into the college ranks. Yeah. And like, it was really weird because last year, um, he was actually coaching running backs and like, no one knew why (laughs) like, Oh, by the way, you're really good at quarterback. So, uh, now you're a QB coach, which makes a lot more sense. It's it's going to be interesting especially for Winky because uh Garantano graduates after, after this year and there's like nobody behind him. Uh, Brian Maurer was a kid who got some playing time last year but didn't really wow anybody. Now, they can recruit almost any quarterback they want, but it's going to be super young. So, he's got his he's got to work. What do you think about Garantano? He's fine. He's fine. I I I understand that in today's game you can't just be fine. Like that's almost a negative, but um he he really cut down on his sack rate. He cut down on his interceptions, and like he's not mobile, he's not really going to wow you with the deep ball. But like he he finds the right short, you know, the short passing route, and then he lets those guys cook, <laughs> do their thing, and um, that works when you have receivers who can do that. Uh, but uh, he's not going to have the receivers this year. He's going to have more kind of a better running back stable. So. I, you know he's he's an SEC quarterback and he'll do fine, but he's not going to beat you. That's for damn sure. If things go south this year, that's the way that it goes south, in my opinion, for for Tennessee. Um, yep. And I'm not expecting that to necessarily be the case. I think that they're going to be a team that that eight and four, the the, the place where Mizzou has been in recent years, where they're fighting mm-hmm. for like second, third in the SEC East. I think that's probably going to be around the range where Tennessee is this season. Um, but if, if for whatever reason they were to go South, I would imagine that the quarterback play is probably the reason why it would happen. If you think that Missouri can be Tennessee this year, you're, you're thinking that because they will have played Oklahoma in week two at Oklahoma, and then they will have just played Florida right before we show up in Knoxville. So if you subscribe to the body blow theory where, you know, big physical teams that recruit super well, just beat the hell out of other teams. Uh, and soften them up for the next week. Uh, who do they play after us? South Carolina. Eh, okay. Well, 
you got to hope that Florida beats them. <laughs> like, makes them hurt so that uh, Missouri's terrible offense or <clears throat> young offense uh, can come in and maybe move the ball a little bit and that defense can hold on for dear life. Mizzou's hope to beat Tennessee next year is the same hope that Vanderbilt had to beat Mizzou last year. You make it, it a 24-14 game. You mm-hmm. uh, make it really, really ugly. And suddenly at the end, you're like, holy cow, we might actually win this game. And that's, that is their hope to win that game next year. Yeah. Or this year, I suppose. This, whatever whatever year we're in. Um, yeah, so we'll see. I mean, at this point, you know, if you're looking at the schedule um, and kind of like what I'm thinking and, and keeping track of what I'm thinking and what you're thinking, I mean, what, what do we got Mizzou at? What, three and two? Or, sorry, uh, four and two at this point, right? Yeah, somewhere around there. Four. That Yes, that's that seems right. I, I feel like that almost seems optimistic given how we think the rest of the season is going to go uh but yeah i i feel like four and two feels feels correct even though it also sounds wrong if that makes sense yeah that's something weird will happen it always happens in in columbia but you know we'll see oh wait no uh, three and two three and Central Arkansas, yeah, Central Arkansas, Vandy, South Carolina is a toss-up game, but we'll call it a loss. Eastern Michigan's got to be a win, yeah. and then Tennessee, yeah, yeah, three, three and two. two. There you go. And then BYU, I, I'm interested. Uh, we'll, we'll start previewing that on the next episode. Oh boy! But, oh uh, boy! We talk a lot about swing <laughs> games. Some news for you. Uh, yeah. That, that could certainly yeah. go down on that list. Um, by the way, we haven't made it to quite to an hour yet. So with the like two minutes that we have remaining. You think Mizzou's going to have fans in the stands this year? Uh, yes, I do. I do too. I, do. I don't know if it's the right call or not, but uh, after listening to the press conference with um, the administration last week, I think they're going to do it. I think it's going to happen. Yeah. I think there's just too much money to be lost. I think there. so too. Exactly. Exactly. They're not going to. They're not going to sacrifice all sports because. Of some silly pandemic. Now, if you're asking me if that's right or not, which you're not, but if you were, uh, no comment. You, you sure. don't want to hear me say that. But uh, what you do want to know if, if people are in the stands, and I say yes. Now, it's probably twenty five, thirty thousand, 30,000. But um, they, they are going to find a way to make it happen. Jim so, Sterk said, um, quote, if we can have uh, season ticket holders and single, si- single game ticket holders, it'll be a 20% shortfall for their revenue. So if they're not able to have the single game ticket holders, yeah. it's going to be like 25, 30%. And if they're not able to have any fans, I don't want to know what that number is. And I'm sure that Jim Stark doesn't either. <laughs> so that's, that is we're why. Already that is why. We're already in the red. We're already in the red because we've got a new coach and a new coaching staff. And we're getting floating alone mm-hmm. from the school. So that's cool. <sighs> well, hey, they got some good recruits, man. They got some good be. recruits. <laughs> we did. We did. Oh, by the way, um Sunday is Father's Day. Um for all of you who if you keep track or if you don't just to, you know, just letting you know Sunday's Father's Day. As a father, I'll just tell you, don't force anything. Don't feel like you have to do something. Be real. Okay? Do what you do what you think is going to be right. Know your dad, you know, what's he going to like? Um, if that's leaving him alone for a day and let uh-huh. him watch, you know, bridge over the river quiet, then let him do that. Right. If it's let him go golfing or if he wants to hang out with you guys, like, cool. If you want to make him breakfast, do it. If you're going to give him a card. Don't <laughs> get him a card. But if you want to give him a card, make it, <laughs> make it funny. Like, well, just don't force anything. That's the best thing you can give a father on father's day. So do something, nice. do something nice for your dad. And if it includes you grilling for him instead of him grilling, go ahead and do that as well. There you go. There you go. And then he'll hover behind your shoulder. Exactly. Exactly. And he'll enjoy the hell out of every second of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It'll be Get good. him a new whiskey. Good. You know he's been waiting for one. <sighs> that is one of the more dad things that I that I do, which is enjoy a good whiskey and a good war movie. So, I'm getting there. Uh, BK, anything else? Any other thoughts? I don't think so, mind? man. Make sure everybody listens to uh, Ribs and BK weekdays from 11 to 2 o'clock on yeah. 101 ESPN in St. Louis or on your free 101 ESPN app. And make sure you keep checking out the uh, Rock M Nation flagship, rockmnation.com. Um, I know I'm posting up one to two stories each and every week. Uh, now that we're done with our draft series, it is actual content <laughs> now for you guys. 
Oh, we got to actually yeah. work. Oh my <laughs> so, god! Uh, and I know Nate's been posting up all of these previews on the site as well, and they are well worth your time. I don't just say this because he's the guy that I host the show with, but we are very lucky as Mizzou fans to have Nate writing about Mizzou regularly because he is informed as hell on these other teams as well as the University of Missouri, and he's able to prepare you for what the season's going to look like in a way that I can't, frankly, and I'm not sure anybody else is doing, not only for Mizzou, but really across the country in, in sites like Rock M Nation. So make sure you check those out as well. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the feedback and the positivity. I, it's something that I enjoy. Now, what can I say? I do it, I do it for the people. That's what I like to do. I'm going to scratch my own itch. Uh, but thank you. Thank you very much. And, of course, you know, that that's our show for today. We also enjoy podcasting for you all, and, and we do it for free. So, please, please, we appreciate your downloads and your subscriptions. And leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. You can rate us. We love all types of feedback, of course. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Nate G. Edwards. BK is at BK Sports Talk. And of course, you can follow the Rockin' Flagship at Rockin' Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, M-I-Z. Z-O-U.